Good evening and welcome to the Recollective Podcast. My name's Charlie Beale and as ever I'm joined in the virtual studio by Tom Goodfellow and this evening making a special first guest appearance, a man who we've referenced on a number of occasions but never had with us live, Mr Simon Rubenstein. Welcome Simon. Hey. Well, well, thank you. The honour is the honour is truly felt. I promise you. <laughs> have you had any chance to listen to previous recollective podcast episodes? I have. I, I would say I, <laughs> I've had many chances. You know, a lot of people did gainful things during lockdown. I, I entertained <laughs> myself with a, a fine selection of, of podcasts from friends, and yours was one of them. Oh really? You have yes. other other podcasts from friends. You'll have to share those with us. Um, oh, I how will. Dare you have other friends making podcasts? It's very good to have you on here. We all saw each other in person recently as well, which was delightful and unusual. I know. It's it's, it's almost it's almost like like it used to be, yet somehow not. And in in a really <laughs> lovely house as well. We all saw each other. <laughs> we did. Yes. Yes. As you age, some people do very well. Some people do even better. Um, so uh, this is a continuation of, well, I feel like in some ways it's a continuation of an episode we, we did recently, Tom, on, on sort of mid-tier Reading Festival bands, because it took us to the era where we're going to go once again tonight, to the early, early 90s. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a continuation, although not necessarily chronologically, of a number of other episodes where we've talked about one year in the 90s, I think it was 96, 97? Um, mm. And we talked about Britpop, which was quite 90s. But yeah, now we're, we're almost going back further into the depths of 90s than we ever have done. Um, and this is partly because Simon and I met in the early 90s, very early 90s. And 91, Charlie, I think. I think so, yeah. And 91 is going to feature. Uh, and um, <laughs> Charlie and I met, and then Simon too, in the late 90s. So there is a lacuna, there is a period. Not the low, well, I met you in 96, but you two wow. were, were obviously friends and had been to school together and had a whole shared history and shared music history. And, and I sort of think that's what this episode's about, yeah. is, is your, your guys' shared music history. We had a five-year period. period, a five-year period where we knew each other before we met you. And that, in that period, you weren't in the UK, right? So that's partly what we're exploring. Yeah, I was, I was on the beaches listening to Johnny Clegg uh, and Mango Groove and Sipo Hot Sticks Mabusa and all these other bands that, and, and artists I'm going to regale you with in the next episode, which hopefully will be on South Africa. But this is, this is your stage, so I'm, gonna, I'm an interloper in this episode. Well, I can tell you there's some tracks that are interlopers in this episode too. <laughs> <laughs> some unexpected I, gems. I, I think... I would think they're probably all interlopers. And also quite exciting. Um, normally when we do these podcasts, Charlie chooses some songs. I choose some songs, sometimes other people. But Charlie knows what they all are. Uh, in this case, Simon and I have chosen the songs. Charlie knows what they all are. But neither of us know what each other have chosen. Uh-huh. So it's surprises all around for us. Which is nice. And hopefully there'll be a few stories um, and anecdotes to go alongside your choices. Do you know, Charlie, I don't think there's anything our listeners want more than to hear about <laughs> some specific incidents involving Simon, me, a bottle of cider, a couple of other random people in the Camden Falcon. You know, that's you're in the right place, listeners. I mean, I've yeah. got some even lower key stories that go with these, go with some of these tracks. Very, very specific moments that, that hopefully, Tom, you will remember, but um, no one else will be interested in, I imagine. <laughs> Fabulous. Anyway, we do have one listener. 
Yeah, we've dispensed with the map because as the cadence of episodes has gone down slightly, as life has returned somewhat to normal, um, we're doing these on a less less uh, frequent basis, which means our international audience has plummeted. Um, really? Yeah. You checked it out, yeah. Peru. Do you know what? I haven't actually checked it out. I will do it after we, we, yeah. we listen to the first track. So without further ado, Tom, take us away with this, the first choice. Okay. So my first track um, is a song that I associate with my sister for a number of reasons. Um, but my sister really introduced me to indie music. <laughs> I was already laughing. He doesn't, doesn't even know what the song is or anything. Um, but he knows my sister. And, and <laughs> he knows that, that she went to Sussex University before Simon moved to Brighton. So they have a Brighton link. And Brighton University in the 1990s, sorry, Sussex University or anything to do with Brighton really, was, a, was a, really a place to be, I think, for indie music. And... Um, my sister used to go and see bands at the East Slope Bar on the campus of Sussex University and, and some bands who became quite big, like Blur and stuff. But um, I, I came to, to know about a lot of, of, of kind of indie music through her being at university before me. And um, this was a band, an American band, um, uh, quite well known at the time. I don't know how well remembered, associated with bands like the Lemonheads. Uh, and this uh, is the Juliana Hatfield Three. Uh, and this song, uh, you, you'll understand the other reason why I associate it with my sister, although you have to get past the first line, otherwise you'd think that I hate her. And that is not the case, even though we sometimes fought a lot. So let's hear this, and it'll be interesting to see if Simon has any memories of it too. talk over this a bit now uh, because it is a kind of rocking bit at the end that um, it would be nice not to talk over but um yeah Juliana Hatfield don't know if she made it to South Africa 
So she was in the Lemonheads, wasn't she? Yeah, I think for a while, yeah. Yeah, all I know of her is her songs are si slightly, not simplistic, but there's maybe, yeah, simplistic. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's, that's it, a harsh indictment there, Charlie. Yeah. Maybe it's a, a, a lesson we could have taken from because we were always trying to make our songs more complicated and like, oh, what can we do it and take it here? But this is paid by numbers indie rock, isn't we, it? We kind of had this conversation last time, didn't we, when listening to Pavement, I think, and we talked about mm. the, the joy of simplicity. Yeah, I really enjoy this Julianne Hatfield stuff for that reason. I mean, it's Julianne Hatfield 3. I don't know if we ever did the episode on three pieces, but I wanted to. I, I remember this um, on one of, one of many cassettes, tapes, actually, that I think came back, either sent back or Lucy bought back from when she was down in, in Sussex when we saw her. And it's kind of one of those things that's sort of been a, a, a kind of background music to, to the early 90s. I was never obsessed over the Juliana Hatfield 3, but always had a sort of soft spot for it and would come up. And I didn't know that's what you were going to play, but I, I had a whole range of things that might have come out of that era in my mind, so maybe others will turn up later. <laughs> I think the song's finished while we're talking. <laughs> Is that the case? Yeah, we missed the rocking bit at the end. That's all right. You can always just, you know, crank it up over our talking. Um, so there we are. That's like, um, yeah, I feel it, I, it gives me a kind of warm feeling of like, my sister's at university. She's coming back with these tapes of indie bands. She's sometimes seen them live, which is quite exciting. I haven't yet seen very many bands live. It's kind of, must be 92 or 93. She went to uni in 95. Sorry. Um, 91. When did she go to uni? No, no. She, can't have gone, she can't have gone to uni till 93 or something like that. Anyway. This but, is um, why they tune in. For this, this is, kind yeah, of detail. They love the discussions about <laughs> dates. They're lengthy. <laughs> um, anyway, so I wanted to kick off with something that kind of evoked those early uh, introductions to indie via, yeah, demo tapes, mixtapes, rather. Oh, it's sonically been... nostalgic. You know, yeah. I, there's, there's something about that whole sound and way of making music that just takes you right back to the early 90s. It makes me happy. It's a yeah. happier time. A happier time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's not go down that road, Simon. Well, Give us why don't we have your first choice, Simon? <laughs> so, so what I'm really conscious of is I don't think I ordered these tracks specifically, so they're just going to come in the order they're in. But this one, um, this track is... I've loved this track from the, the first time I heard it, and the first time I heard it was on a mixtape. Like, not a mixtape that friends had made, a mixtape that you'd, you could purchase. And the mixtape was called Loaded, and... It never, ever existed again, ever. Because several years later, I, I, I thought, oh, God, it'd be really great to have that again. Have that on CD, have that on MP3. It, it's like it's been erased from history. I begin to think I might have imagined it. But there were, a, it was full of great tracks, including The Only Living Boy in New Cross, which you referenced last time around. Loads of great stuff. But this is um, a, a song called Start Chopping by Dinosaur Jr., and it is like the soundtrack to, well, not just the 90s, but forever. It's still one of my favourite songs. I think it's got everything in it that's kind of great about grunge, about bearded rock, and about, like, really melodic guitars, heavy guitars. I absolutely adore it. Still adore it now. <laughs> Thank you. 
there's no going back to that I so numb can't even react Didn't say it's not okay But we are feeling the same way He did the grunge, the proper grunge solo like no one else, right? He, re he really did. I, rem I remember our friend Jack, Jack Reynolds, talking about jamming with Jay Maskis in the guitar shop on Denmark Street. It might be an apocryphal story, but that sounded pretty cool to me. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I remember all those tapes you'd get. It was probably off like Melody Maker or Vox something, or something like that. It was normally Vox, they'd give you like, a free tape. But I think I didn't have that one. And, uh, I've, I know the song, I've heard it, I guess, but I don't, I don't think I ever listened to it. I never really got it. I, I haven't heard it much in my life. So it's funny that you were perhaps listening to that a lot more than I was. Because I was aware of Dinosaur Jr. and I knew a few of the songs. What was that other one? Um, <laughs> never mind. Uh, there's another famous song that, that we got in that video, No Nirvana. By the uh, way, as a great accompaniment to this podcast, there was, was it The Late Show? It was the Late Show, Ireland, Irish Late Show. Yeah, and they did one episode which was called No Nirvana, I think. It had all the bands on apart from oh. Nirvana. Everyone was on it. Like Pearl Jam was on it. Live, um, yeah. 
Yeah, live. Um, Jay, uh, th these guys were on it. Yeah, they're like pre-grunge, like the original it, grunge, really. Yeah, they, they were, and like they continue now, like continue strongly playing acoustic sets a lot, but exactly the same way. So it's like they they just continue to tour, and you can chart time by the length of Jay Maskis's beard, which is now <laughs> well past his waist, if you find pictures. <laughs> So they're still going? They are very much still going, yeah. Very, very much. Um, they played They played in London, um, like, literally two, three weeks ago. Really, really recently. I love the uh, vocal sound. It sounds like the chap from Afghan Wigs. And then, don't forget the alcohol. Do you remember that one we played last time? Um, although, with a I bit do, more... Well. A bit more croak, as you say. Um... I, I like Does to that think that, croak? yeah, it's the precursor to the modern phenomenon of uh, vocal fry. You familiar with this? No, no, no. Have I'm you not, not seen? Uh, well, uh, I'm. I'm sorry that I'm giving you this uh, because once you hear vocal fry, you won't be able to unhear it. It's the thing that um, I think it was popular popularized in early podcasts, um, but it's become something that sort of, particularly in the US, young wannabe intellectuals do as a as a vocal affectation, and it's basically when you s s kind of do this a bit with your voice, and you you yeah. make it sort of effectively deep and cr croaky. Oh, so you're. Uh, and it's usually when you're trying to make a really serious point. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's like you're uh, frying yeah, your voice. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, vocal fry. <laughs> so, what, so look, vocal fry just describes that. It's, it's a phenomenon, and, it's, and, and people have uh, um, looked into why more and more people are doing it. Because they're terrible people. <laughs> but, it's a bit like mumblecore, you... but... <laughs> now that I've told you about it, you're going to hear it a lot. Well, I mean, yeah. I imagine you hear it a lot if you listen to a lot of late-night NPR radio or something. <laughs> but it's a very American thing, is it? I mean, do you get British vocal fry in the same way? Like, I think vocal fry will be now accent. the equivalent of people going right at the end of a sentence, which has right. now become commonplace, right? Right. Um, just, yeah. I'm but it, it emerged someone... about three or four years ago in the US tech scene, right? And it's basically like, yeah, I'm right, aren't I? Right? Um, I can see a lot of videos about the vocal fry epidemic from 2011, you know, and stuff. So it's clearly been around. But um, I'm just trying to imagine vocal fry in like, a, I don't know, like a Geordie accent or a Cockney accent. <laughs> to be fair, that was, uh, that was an, an epidemic I survived without noticing. <laughs> it's not quite yeah, a pandemic, is it? But it might get there. Um, good stuff. Great to hear some Dinosaur Jr. Uh... We're being very American up front here, aren't we? I mean, Indeed. if we're going to move on to my next one, I realise that's also... I didn't deliberately put two uh, American tracks first. Oh, they're not chronological either. But um, shall, shall I Shall I move towards my next? Do it. You Do go, it. go there. Go there. It's not vocal fry. It's quite different. And also, I think, in a way, that Dinosaur Junior song was, was very simple, simplistic as well, in its kind of composition. And it's... Um, Kind of nursery rhyme like, really. The had nice the, swampy the guitars though that Juliana yeah. didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's true. She was much more indie, jangly indie. Mm. But this song, this is actually quite a complex song sonically. Uh, and this is a band which, again, I really associate with a mixtape. Um, and this was an absolutely fundamental mixtape for me. 
I, I don't actually think this song was on it, but another song by this band. So this is um, Daniel Tucker, I think, made a, a, a mutual friend, made a tape that came via his sister uh, with me to, uh, to Calais when I went with my sister and our friend Chloe uh, to Calais on a bus just to like, go to France for the day because we thought that would be fun. I was about 13 and I had this tape and I just listened to it again and again and again and it had all these American bands on. It was the first time I heard Pearl Jam. It was the first time I heard Chris Cornell, I think, doing his solo stuff. It was incredible. I just had this tape and I was like, my mind was blown. Chili Peppers were on there. And this band, Faith No More. And I don't know, I mean, they must have made it to South Africa. So when I was putting American bands on, I was always a bit like, part of the point of this episode is what did Charlie miss? What did he not get by not coming to the UK in the early, early mid 90s? And um, so you may well know this song, but I associate it with, you know, it's... It, they weren't like Nirvana and Pearl Jam in, on that level, but a band that's sometimes forgotten. And the song on the mixtape was epic, but the song I'm playing now uh, is a kind of step up on the, on the following album. And yeah, let's listen to it uh, and then talk about it. There's a great breakdown um, and build up that we need to get in a minute. <laughs> I think there was something about Mike Patton's voice, wasn't there? It was just kind of like epic, if you forgive the pun. <laughs> it's 
great band. I don't know what happened to Faith No More. I just did look it up, but I've forgotten. I think you're right in saying that this kind of sound would have tra um, travelled to South Africa in a more palatable way than perhaps Dinosaur Junior. Um, I think we were ready for stuff that wasn't quite as radio unfriendly and unmelodic as, as early grunge. But this is this so is gonna... proper big rock, isn't it? I can break it to you. Faith No More are due to tour um, next year. Let's go! <laughs> but yeah, there's, I mean, they were very... So it's obviously like some part Beastie Boys, part... I don't know. I mean, and there's a, a straight line through, I think, the big hits of the first of the three albums. So there's We Care A Lot and then there's like Epic and then there's this with a very, you know, similar sound. And I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I never looked up the lyrics. I never really knew what the lyrics were. And I was just actually looking. If you read the lyrics as he's singing, it's quite entertaining because <laughs> they're often not what you think. You, and I you, thought, you, sorry, go on. I was say, you know what this sort of evokes for me? Unequivocally, is that it is the forum in Hatfield? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the forum in Hatfield. I think maybe that's going to come up later as well. Yeah, um, we were quite young. We were quite young when we used to go to the forum. Yeah, in Hatfield yeah, we with, were. With a, and absolutely get smashed on Kiwi Twenty Twenty. We, yeah, it was it was the most drunken time of my life, and it was before the age of fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, who else sings a line like? I thought it was your menstruating heart. It's actually your menstruating heart, but still. Weirdly, apparently the song was about Madonna. <laughs> because they sort of um, thought that she might be having a bit of a crisis in the early 90s um, due to being so successful. And you notice also the line about you're in your 30s or something. <laughs> so it's like, I think we're well past uh, midlife crisis, um, according to them. What I quite like is sonically we've heard three different sounds that are all so early 90s, but they're actually quite different. Very different. Yeah. Great choice, Tom. Uh, Great choice. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you know, just, I mean, before we move on, I don't really know much about Faith No More. We never, we didn't sort of obsess about them in the same way. I didn't know all of their albums back to back as we did with some of the other, I mean, they weren't a grunge band. I remember considering playing them when we did grunge, but I was like, they're not really grunge, even though it's the same period. I, I seem to, they, they fall into that category, as I said, the forum in Hatfield, um, possibly feet first in Camden Town, but almost more, more stronger than that. Like a Saturday, a Friday night, three in the morning music video show, um, yeah. which I will be referring to in a little while. I can't wait. So what, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but I know the one you mean. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they didn't make it to South Africa really, Charlie, or not, you weren't really... They weren't on your radar. No, but what strikes me, and I'm not sure if this is this midlife crisis was a was indicative of their sound overall. That they more similar to the sort of new metal bands that would come in like a decade later. Yeah, I suppose they were forerunners of that. Yeah, because that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, I don't know anything about Faith No More. It was uh, to yeah. me, it was another name on some posters in, in a land that I would be soon to visit. I mean, of course, their biggest, their biggest um, hit was cover of Easy Like Sunday Morning. And that's what a lot of people know them for, which is completely different. Um, and that probably would have made it to South Africa. Yeah. But yeah. Shame. That would have been playing Shame. over the, the radios, on the beaches and the bras. But yeah, you're right. It's a different vocal. The vocal style very much the opposite of vocal fry in some ways. What do we call that? I don't know. To be popularised by many new metal bands 
um, vote. Yeah, can't think of a good term for it. That said, Simon, your next choice I did know and love. Okay. So, so going from, as you were saying, sonically complex, probably back to sonically simple again. And it is just an absolutely great track. And it's one that I, I loved listening to in the 90s, we were talking about, and then actually didn't listen to very much until I started looking for this. And I came across it and I was just like, how could I not have this in my life more than I have done? And it's, it's kind of from a band who I think I probably thought I was reasonably cool for liking at that time because they were a little bit less mainstream and a little bit, certainly in the UK, a little bit less big. But actually they were huge in America and like heralded a whole Chicago music scene that I was otherwise oblivious to. Um, but if you heard it and didn't know they were from Chicago, I think you'd think it was kind of mid-grunge kind of thing. But this is, um, this is a song, sorry, Charlie, you can say something? Exactly. So it's got it's got a breed a very big breeders kind of vibe to it. And it's um Seether by Veruca Salt. And it's a fucking great, great track. probably not as classic as the Jay Mascus guitar solo, so we can talk over it. But of course, what strikes me about this straight away, I know the song, I haven't heard it for years, 
is how much it was ripped off by the hives, like the riff. Yeah, completely. I didn't and, realize and, that. And I forgot. Well, I mean, there's like, there's, firstly, the album's called American Thighs, which is a great name for an album, I think. But um, lots of people ripped them off, I think. Loads and loads of people did. But um, I, th- I just really enjoy it. It's really easy to listen to, and it makes me happy again. A bit like Juliana Hepfield 3 did. My, my feeling on this is I, the, the clean female vocals that sit on top of a, a sludgy guitar sound, they do much better than Juliana Hatfield, just for my money. Um, You're very anti-Juliana. Well, I don't know. I think she's Veruca Salt after a lobotomy. Um, well, this is Veruca a different Salt category, still though. got she's... something. <laughs> no, I mean... It... I think that Juliana is very much in the in the category of the jangle, you know. She's the like, she's the kind of the Evan Dando's wet dream kind of character. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like the the sweet girl next door who's just plugged in a Whereas these guys are like, they got balls. Yeah, but it is still, it is still that kind of like quite clean women's vocal, um, which I think, I think they're the the exemplars of. Do you know what also is weird about it is I think there's quite a bit of... They were quite formative for Placebo, too. Placebo always said that they got a lot of their sound from them. When you listen to some of that vocal, which is strange, because obviously there's a bit of a gender mismatch there, but um, the vocal's really quite like Placebo as well. and they always It's also the overdriven bass as yeah. well. Yeah, and it, I mean, it, well, we had a Sonic Youth track as well, didn't we, which is... Again, with the sort of female vocal and the, you know, the filthy sounding guitars. I mean, not just the female vocal, but yeah, that whole with with the Pixies and it. It's a great classic American sound of the kind of late eighties, early nineties. I'm um, glad we glad we rediscovered it. Yeah, I might go and check them out actually because I never purposely kind of listened to Veruca Salt. Now. I don't want to give our audience the impression that Simon and I were just listening to American music in the early 90s. I mean, we were listening to a lot of American music, much of which we can't even cover in this episode because it's simply too well known or covered elsewhere. Um, You know, essentially part of the grunge scene. But we mustn't forget the bands that hail from places like Cinderford in Gloucestershire. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is also not a band we particularly listen to, but I'm just thinking about the time. My next track, to me... It, this is just the sound of the early 90s. It's not the most famous song by this band. It's the second most famous song. But I listened to it when I was diving back into this era and I was like, I just have to play this song because this, this is the sound of the early 90s in England. The very early 90s. I'm not even going to say what it is. I want Simon to enjoy that experience of hearing the opening. Derry! 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 I'm going to smash the fucking place. Derry, right what's the fucking time?
about this song as well, apart from its massively evoking the early 90s, is actually that chord change into the chorus or whatever you call it. It's quite surprising uh, every time I hear it. I actually think it's quite, it's quite good. Apparently they were very influenced by Schubert. Really? Well, the drop before um, <clears throat> You're Unbelievable is also quite good, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty good. Apparently uh, the songwriter Ian Dench said if he was ever short of a chord sequence, he would nick one from Schubert. So. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's very much the same for the shaman, as I understand it. <laughs> they were equally I into ecstasy. <laughs> no, they were inspired by Hector Berlioz. <laughs> MDMA. I mean, I could have played the shaman, of course, but I wouldn't really have known what to play apart from... Oh, come he's, on. He, apart from he's a good, and we're, tr you know, we're going for the second most expensive wine on the list. But th days. this is the I thing. Mean, this second cheapest. Hearing this just makes me think I should have gone cheaper with some of my choices. <laughs> what are you saying? Did you try and stay I... coo too cool? <laughs> We've got to be true. We've got to keep it real. Um, yeah, I think I'd... Well, I'd that's... Definitely... I mean, com compared to the first four, that's out of a completely different drawer, isn't it? Yes, and we will be getting even cheaper, I can assure you. As, as will mine, in a place. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm, I'm firmly staying this, this side of the um, Atlantic now as well. Um, so, you know, is it Manchester? Is it Grebo? They're from Gloucestershire. Sounds like, very Grebo. Midlands. There's going to be more Midlands coming as well. Any Did we Simon? do Ned's Atomic Dustbin in the last one? Uh, we talked about them. I don't, I don't think we... Did we play them? I don't think we played them. But yeah, I... EMF... Sorry, go on. I know, as I say, I, I just think that they, they don't get the recognition they deserve. But A, the work they did to bring, like, Nylon Ezidas back strongly into the, the human consciousness. And also, like, making acceptable, like, songs like The Shaman did about flagrant drug use and getting them on top of the pops easily with everyone singing along with no one raising any questions. I think it was, it was like infiltration of, a, of, of mass media pop music. It was great. Oh, it was really all the rage then, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, we'll talk about this a bit more, I think, because uh, there's certainly some songs that I think is quite interesting when you think about the early 90s in relation to that music. Um, because it's not... It's some, yeah, there's some similarities and differences with now. I mean, we're talking about 30 years ago now. 30 years. It's there was something... I don't want to make this all political, but there was something brewing, I think, in the early 90s. And it was happening in music and with Britpop and everything towards this kind of hedonistic freedom piece that sort of came together in 96, 97, when it all just went crazy. And this was this was the early end of it. EMF was really the proto, proto 90s stuff. It was Acid House as well. It's all based in Acid House. Yeah, so it kind of, it's kind of in some ways more rooted in the 80s than, than the 90s, um, in some ways. I remember late, you late saying, 80s. Tom, in the 96 episodes, what was it like to arrive in the UK at such a silly time? Yeah. <laughs> um, which, <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, given from where we're sitting today in 2021, it, but it did seem a little bit less uh, serious on, on a number of counts. Yeah. Well, maybe that was just our age. I think, but also that was the mid-90s, which I think was very different, the mid-late 90s. Um, I'll come to that in relation to my next track, actually. So, I don't, But yeah, I think... Uh, there's a, there's a big difference in the early 90s and the mid and late. I'm going on dates again um, in terms of the vibe, because I think this, yeah, there's a period. There's, 
this comes out of Thatcherism where you've got this combination of very politicised stuff mm. and this kind of hedonistic party culture um, before everything just got a bit like, woo, in the Britpop period, like, everything's kind of fun and silly. Um, what have you got up next, Si? So, I've got, I'm afraid I've gone back to America. Um, I and, like this one. And it's a strange choice. But this comes from two, two strong memories, probably about around the same time. One of them is, is something I shared with Lucy, actually. Lucy liked this song too, and we kind of bonded over this. But the first time I ever heard it, Tom, I can remember really clearly, uh, you and I were in my mum and dad's living room in Bushy, as we would be of an evening, listening to or watching television at two in the morning, as you would. And the true hero of the 90s was on television, and that was Gary Crowley, who presented a programme called The Beat. <laughs> and The Beat, Charlie, in case you don't know, maybe you do know, consisted of a Cockney chap called Gary Crowley walking around Primrose Hill in the rain, basically, wearing a tracksuit, and sort of semi-narrating between kind of music videos of sort of the stereophonics largely as far as I can remember but the, I remember hearing this track um, probably about three in the morning and it's just a weird song and they've actually got quite an interesting story this band too so it's a song called Jupiter and Teardrop by a band called Grant Lee Buffalo Just a girl who can't say no that remind you of anything. <laughs> and a sweetheart It's got a really mean crescendo, this song, too. Who are you who are you referencing, Tom? Who do you think it's a rip-off of? No, just that first line to me was a, a homage perhaps to um Moon Age Daydream. I, sorry, my mind went to the vocal. Yeah, of course the guitar is. Yeah, but just the like the the conversation between the guitar and the vocals. Another vocal style of that, that kind of like Ernest, this sort of. Bit Dylan. It's massively overindulgent. I definitely had some. Oh, I definitely had this on a mixtape off Vox. And actually, I have a theory that maybe Grant Lee Buffalo only exists on mixtapes off Vox. Like. Get out to the wild. Would you turn it on the dial? 
sound I can imagine making it over to Durban. In theory. You can imagine making what? Over to Durban. Like, I mean, the sound, you know? Kind of so, Americana. well, funny you should say that. I owned a Grantley Buffalo album. Oh, um, so this wasn't on it. Uh, oh, wow. The, the, you're you're the, the person. Song, you're so I'm wrong the about the mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 there was. I had, I had a whole album. And it was recommended to me by the late night DJ Barney Simon, who had an alternative rock show that I used to listen to after Lights Out at Hilton College. Barney Simon used to recommend Grantly Buffalo. Ah, brilliant. I'm a fan of guitar solos that mimic the vocal melody. Yes. It's after the solo that this song gets better, I think. Actually. Okay. Should we put it back up then? And they want to have a child. Walk together down the aisle. But the world we're living in. self-conscious it is it's just gratuitously kind of self-indulgent it's a great it's a great song it's a great song i always thought of grantley buffalo as a person but it's a band and grantley phillips is the vocal and guitarist isn't it yeah 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 that's right it's one of those confusing ones where you're like is it a band is it a person he's prone to doing strange things he recently i read the other day he recently went into a prison to recreate the Johnny Cash Folsom prison thing, singing all the Johnny Cash songs himself. That's that's a level of um, <laughs> level of confidence to do that. Yeah, certainly is. Um, good, well done. I never would have captive audience. That, really. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest audience he's seen for some time, I imagine. <laughs> Uh, any, any... Do you remember we were going to be called Captives? Oh, we were at one point, weren't we? I think maybe there was an, we found there was another band called that, but also um, we changed our mind. Yes, I mean, I think there was uh, a several, a several choices and a very long list. Yes, we probably did. Yeah, we could do an episode on that separately. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what Grantley Buffalo is or are up to now, Simon? Uh, well, other than playing prison gigs, uh, they're mostly mostly dead, and um, no, one one of them's dead. Um, Grantley Phillips isn't, and is sort of doing solo tours himself, uh, and producing with Trent Reznor, which is interesting. 
Yeah. And anyone who works with Trent Reznor basically is onto something pretty good because he works on bloody everything now. But um, yeah, so he's built a career for himself post Grantley Buffalo. I would think that, you know, you'd think it was only down after Grantley Buffalo, but it turns out you can have a career after that. It'd be quite interesting to trace, you know, what a lot of these people from the 90s have done on both sides of the Atlantic, actually. Some of them are still very active. Others are just popping up every now and then. I, I noted when I was looking at EMF that they've had, I think, three or four um, <laughs> reunions. Um, at, at least three or four of them have passed me by. So <laughs> I must catch up with the, the next I'm genu- one. generally quite excited about the Faith No More tour, although I'd be slightly scared of who you might, you know, of, of the audience. Brixton, well, the audience is us, unfortunately. Um, Brixton, Brixton Academy, June next year. Would you like oh me God. to buy you tickets? It's a present that it's a gift. I, I would seriously, yeah, consider that. Um, well, well that's, don't, yeah. don't make threats. You're not going to come. I will. I will do oh, this. I will. Do I will it. buy this. We're doing Pearl Jam and the Pixies, assuming that's still happening. So. Yeah, well, it won't be. But but Faith No More, I feel, are less COVID risky. They won't have a crowd of any notable size. <laughs> that's true. Um, I want to take us back to Gloucestershire. No, <laughs> to, <laughs> to Birmingham. <laughs> okay, so my next song is a pretty, um, probably surprising choice. Uh, Simon, I don't know what, if any, memory you have of this particular act. I'm sure you must remember them. Uh, my, to be, my memories of, of this song are quite vivid, and I found when I listened to it that I knew half of the words, um, even though I've not even thought about it for about... 28 years or more uh, but I remember some other school friends of ours like being in indie clubs and hearing this song um, and what's really interesting about it is it's not really an indie song um, but it became a bit of a crossover hit for reasons that will be fairly evident when you hear it but it really evokes for me a certain kind of just pretty shitty indie club in King's Cross somewhere where they would play this regularly in like, I don't know, 92, 93. It was, it was a big hit, uh, alternative hit. Um, and there's quite a lot that one could sort of say about it, really. So let's, let's hear it. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. You might think you know what it is, but you're wrong. <laughs> Please let it be Transglobal Underground. <laughs> Traction. If I use a knife, you'll be in traction. Call it what you want. 
from abuse. We die in one, not by towns. If you kill one, not all of us are down. We here for a purpose, not for you to murder us. Crossing and fighting just creates a fuss. Like an overcrowded bus or the January rush. Lots of people, all they need is a push. Great. Have you ever heard it? No. It reminds me a bit of Cypress Hill, but sort of like. <laughs> so no, I, they like wish. I, I think I think credit to the nation saw themselves very much as the Midland Cypress Hill. <laughs> <laughs> that was exactly what they were. I mean, what's? I think this is very interesting on a number of levels because this was was played a lot, right? I mean, I actually think, and this is very embarrassing, but I don't care. I think I might have heard this song before I heard Smells Like Team Spirit because I didn't really get to Nirvana or Pearl Jam until definitely at least late in 1992. And this song was released in 1992 and it hit the indie dance floors. I think it's fair to say it wouldn't have been played in the indie dance floors if it weren't for the fact it sampled Teen Spirit. But um, it was also part of this... Like, these guys were mates with Chumbawamba, right? I thought about playing Chumbawamba. They were all that kind of crusty, lefty scene. hung out. So it was levelless people were listening to this. And yet it's got that kind of absolute classic, I mean, there's nothing original about it, right? That, that drum beat from all of the early 90s kind of hip-hop sample. Yet they're singing kind of with the Brummy accent as well as the, like, patois. And they're just talking... I mean, I just, this is where I sort of think... This, there's almost some echoes with today because it's, like, very politicised this time. It's, like, after Thatcher mm. and people are singing. Mm. You had these people singing about racism just very openly and about, like, Chumbawamba had that song called Homophobia... Uh, that was about how homophobia was like the worst thing and then they had that song all these anti-fascist songs um, and then in the mid-90s late-90s it just all went away do you know what I mean? it's like Tony Blair came along and everyone was like well everything's fine now <laughs> but yeah. I, I, th I think it took off and I, 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 this is a massive generalisation but I worry a little bit that it took off because of white middle class people like us in London <laughs> who kind of got on the righteous woke if you want bandwagon with this and chumbawamba and things like that i i i'd be interested to know from a genuine brummy how big they were on the brummy scene <laughs> or whether they <laughs> whether they existed mainly in Hampstead, which is what my uh, my assertion is well I, d I don't know i mean i think they might have been big in the West Midlands and Hampstead, but probably not much further than that. I, 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 I'm not surprised to hear they didn't make it to South Africa. Um, no, no, yeah. this is a bit too niche. I don't think that travelled globally, mm. that sound, but I love it. The, the, you also guys will remember when we went out in the 90s, um, it wasn't just to Indian rock nights. Sometimes, do you remember a night, I think Chloe might have dragged us along to it called Funkin' Pussy. Uh, it was at the Africa Centre. Yeah, well, I don't know where it was, but there was, you know, this sort of like hip hop scratchy type 90s. <laughs> which in itself was derivative of, of like early hip hop, but that, oh, it's that like, had, had yeah. shades of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, that is like a. And, and, and I, I mean, with all due respect to MC Fusion, and uh, just two guys, I think. There's the, 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 the black guy, MC Fusion, and then there was a white guy, and they're both from Birmingham. And it was just those two. And I think, um, you know, they didn't have a very distinguished career and they probably didn't have much musically original about them, right? But but I just find that, it, yeah, it was interesting reflection of the time just in terms of what they were doing and the fact they were hanging out with Chumbawamba, which was also a bunch of white guys from the Midlands 
just sort of singing righteous songs about anti-fascism. And that seems, it seems quaint and sort of quite nice. <laughs> it feels like this time round, the messages of anti-racism um, and anti-homophobia are, um, are sort of more mainstream than they were then. Yes, because this is the kind of song that would not have charted, it didn't chart in the top 40, but it was like number one in the alternative charts for a week or two or something. Yeah. So, so perhaps we have made progress. Perhaps. Yeah, although I sort of feel like now there's a lot of anger about the lack of progress or the assumption that progress has been made when really it hasn't. Whereas then it was all like, yeah, I don't know, it was for fresh and more innocent. I, yeah, I think, I think people felt like they had more agency to do something about it. It didn't feel so insurmountable. Mm. Whether that was true or not is ir ir irrelevant. It, people felt in the 90s, that was one of the things about the 90s, I think, that like, you know, things can only get better. And um, yeah. in some, ca some cases they did. And it seems really obvious to me now that like Thatcher politicised everyone and made everyone go to raves and take loads of E's. And that was like the theme of late 90s, late 80s, early 90s music in the UK. It was like those two things, like political stuff and like rave partying. And then Tony Blair just depoliticised everyone. <laughs> you know, everyone became, you know, everything's great now. And, you know, uh, in retrospect, that seems... And that makes the whole period of the 2000s and 2010s also like, there wasn't that much political indie music in, you know, maybe quite recently, but not when we were in a band. No, there was next to nothing, certainly in the UK. Yeah. It was all anyway. a return to art house. Um, but then, yeah. yeah. They have waves. What's so next, Simon? Uh, yeah, what's up? What's next? Well, next we're going going up in fame, I suppose. Again, I'm sorry, American. <laughs> we're going... <laughs> okay, no, hang on. The two uh, most recent tracks that you've done, Tom, you've not called out. So for those people who want to go and check those songs out, one was I Believe oh, yeah. by EMF, and that was Call It What You Want by Credit to the Nation. Sorry, yeah. Simon. No, no, no. You can't say Credit to the Nation enough on any podcast. They deserve all the credit. Um, so this is, I, I don't want to offend Credit to the Nation, but from a band who possibly fractionally better known around the world than Credit to the Nation. And they have a plethora of uh, hits, isn't quite right, but famous songs to choose from. So I've chosen one that isn't at all famous on the basis that we were doing more obscure stuff here. But I think it really sums up everything you need to know about this band. It has absolute surrealist nonsense at the beginning. Um followed by, like, a really great example of the kind of music it is, and then a wailing, screeching, over-the-top, manic solo from a guitarist who likes nothing better than this. Um, and they're probably a band, Tom, that I liked, I think, more than you did, but it just makes me laugh, particularly when you listen to the beginning of this. So this is Ain't No Right by Jane's Addiction.
Is that it? I remember that, but I thought it was no, the intro no, no. to something. <laughs> that, is the in- that is the intro. You might recognise this bit. It's like, it's only like three minutes long. in question Dave Navarro yes okay who would then go on to join the the Chili Peppers for one album that's right and 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 various other bands for example recording all the guitars on Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill for example did he really he did indeed yes he's got a really nice jagged jaggedy type of style hasn't he very twiddly and quite a good looking gentleman yeah, if, you, if you're into tattoos and facial hair, yes. Yeah. James Addiction. Um, I mean, the guitarists, the guitaring is really big and bold. Their production's really, their production's amazing. But like, they also, like in that song you could hear, they found a sample clearly of a plane taking off and they were not, they didn't feel like that should hold them back from only using it once or twice in one track. They just repeat playing <laughs> and looping a plane taking off. And I think it says a lot about Perry Farrell, who is just like, I mean, Perry Farrell's one of those people who I think what he looks like on the outside is probably an extremely good example of what his brain is like. Like, he's sort of <laughs> twisted and mottled and full of confusion. And um, I don't know, I still, like, I still like Jane's Addiction, but that period of Jane's Addiction was probably like the archetypal Jane's Addiction, I would say. Is that... Is that on Ritual? That's on Ritual to Habitual. Um, I wanted to play Mountain Song, but it was 14 minutes long. And I thought if I played Three Days, which is only 13 minutes 56, that wasn't (laughs) wasn't really much of a reduction. Even though Three Days does have everything in it, like, you know, you can live off Three Days, basically. Three Days is amazing. But yeah, you can't really just be like, oh, we're going to listen to two minutes. You can't, no, you you have have to to hear the whole thing. Yeah. It's a rock opera. It's a rock opera for Three Days. 
Did you ever go and see Jane's Addiction? Because I never did. Yeah, I saw them in Switzerland and I saw them in London. Wow. So how come I didn't come? Was that later on? Later, I didn't later. Not they, like them, but I guess I didn't get into them and follow them no. in the way you did. There, there was a period where Perry Farrell, like, you know, had a small dalliance with heroin. And um, that period was about <laughs> 17 years long. And then at the, at the end of it, he stopped doing heroin, started touring again. I imagine his money ran out. And I saw him at the point that he got clean, in inverted commas, which meant that he weighed more than, you know, five kilos. At one point, he, at one point he just floated on air. Uh, yeah, yeah, so he, he was a strange creature. He's a strange creature. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I mean, it seems obvious to point out the, the name uh, being a sort of outsider name and a character, but did he play a sort of character? Was he a the peripheral, so to speak. He was, well, I did, he did the whole porno for Pyros thing because Jane's addiction wasn't avant-garde enough for him. Um, and he'd fallen out with Dave Navarro by that point. And then it's a wonderful thing how much the promise of an extremely lucrative tour and record deal can make people overcome their musical and creative mm. differences. Uh, <laughs> but he, the whole porno for Pyros thing, actually, whilst I joke about it and everyone jokes about it, produced some really good music, not just Pets, um, but like it produced some really, really interesting music. And he is a really interesting guy, I think. It's just, he's now, I'm going to check it. I don't know. If, he's a lot older than I than you think, Perry Farrell. I think he might be one of those people who's had quite a lot of plastic surgery. Let me find his age. Hold In on. a sort of Steven Tyler, Andy Bell sort of way. I could be wrong. But yeah, he, he, he looks... Um, I'm not have a word said against the looks of Andy Bell. No, well, we discussed it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Andy Bell. This so is amazing. Dead. I found a website about Perry Farrell that says he was born on the 25th um, of March, 29th of March, 1959. And then it says years active underneath, 1981 to 1984. So apparently he was only active for four years. Wow. Um... <laughs> But I, I guess that was his uh, his heyday. He's sixty two. Perry Farrell is sixty two. Okay, plenty of time left in him. Well, yeah, not not much bone left in him by the looks of it. <laughs> Where are you taking us, Tom? Right. Okay. So we're now. I'm sorry, I keep dragging us back over the channel, guys. But um, we are now going. This is my last choice um, of the normal set before we get to our final centrepiece um it's my last choice and uh it takes us back to where we began which is the east slope bar in in sussex university um and this was a place where i know from my sister definitely saw this band and was photographed with the lead singer <laughs> <laughs> i never saw them but i she bought home all this when we've moved from an era of mixtapes into an era of cd singles when bands used to release cd singles sometimes multiple versions of the same single uh, and um, yeah, uh, Lucy had all these CDs from bands she'd seen. And I just, I, I love this song. I mean, the first song by this band, the first single was kind of just silly, I thought. Whereas actually, I think this is a really good song. I love the kind of hanging chord through the verses, the kind of just guitar screechy noise that comes in, in the middle of the verses and the chord changes in the chorus. And yeah, I covered a song by this band once with uh, the great game, <laughs> but not this song. Let's have it.
guess what happened here is they um they supported Blur actually on <coughs> what apparently was called the Sugary Tea Tour in 1993, and that may have been where my sister saw them. Um, it's funny listening to that kind of music after a big American band actually, because obviously you get that kind of poxy production quality of uh, an indie band. It's probably a demo, really. But you know what? It's so much. I mean, I know the song quite well, but it's so much better than I actually remember it as being. It's it's a quite interesting song. I really like it. Haven't heard yeah. it for years. Me too. It sounds pretty awful over. I mean, it's difficult when you're on this end of the of the um, of the Zoom call, listeners. I, you don't get the like same effect as if you're playing the song. Because I listened to it earlier on, and I was like, yes, it's rocking. But uh, everything sounds thinner over the net. But like, I think this is like. Yeah, it's an interesting song. Uh, I think it's a cut above all their other songs. Granite Statue's quite good. That's the one we covered. But you know, tell me about kind of... Salad because uh, I've been put off by the name quite a bit. Yeah, the name is not really a um, selling point. <laughs> so Mike's a big fan. Our friend Mike, who's been on this podcast, is a big fan. They were fronted by Marina Vandervlucht, who was a former model and. Um, a video jockey, which was a thing once, right? A VJ. A VJ. <laughs> a VJ. The, the YouTubers of the 90s. Um, and uh, she was a pretty cool front woman. But, you know, they weren't exactly like the most musically sophisticated band. But, like I say, I liked, I actually quite liked the guitarist. I just like his, like, I don't know, that hanging note in that chord. And I think I was quite influenced by that song, actually. The way, he, you know, when you just kind of like stab in a bit of just like noise in the juncture between two bars um yeah i don't know much about them i mean they they disbanded in the late 90s did a re had reformed in 2017 for you know one of those they were a lesser Britpop band um but i would say one of the more interesting lesser Britpop bands formative nonetheless formative i like that choice that was a nice palette cleanser before the business end and listeners we've got to the business end of the podcast um <laughs> Simon, so, we've so, had this band on before. Yeah, so I, I feel like this is a cliche to put this in. But, Tom, I remain confused. So that was your fifth track. What happened to Evershult, Tom? What happened to Evershult? Oh, don't worry, Simon. Evershult, <laughs> it's, it, normally we play... Simon, Charlie and I will play four or five songs each and then a Seeing Scarlet or Kling song. Today we are sacrificing <laughs> Seeing Scarlet or Kling song for ever shot don't you worry oh okay as, as long as there's because i would feel not shortchanged by not having ever shot but by I mean, not being able to include ever shot because i thought you were well i was always going to uh, suggest we both chose one but anyway by anyway now this so sort of in the same vein i suppose it felt like we couldn't do this without including a track by the next band who were when we talk about formative they were certainly formative for me and i was never a musician um, but they remain a source of both joy and entertainment, I think, to this day for us, particularly because of their enormously prolific um, lead singer, who's now a solo artist uh, and is just currently releasing his 20th album, as I understand it today. But he, he, he's, he, he's quite a character and the band is Jocasta and there are many, many tracks to choose from here. But I chose one that, that probably isn't, like, a total classic favourite, but I think sums up, like, the sound that Jocasta were creating and, like, and, and their winged buskers kissing their winged feet and all of that kind of 
noise and that particular sound that they were part of and trying to forge their place in. So this is um, The Land of Do As You Please uh, by Jocasta. guitar part here. It's fine. It's fine to stop it, but if you stop this song, Charlie, you're going to miss the wonderful bit of alliteration around if you stir the saboteur that's inside you. And I just think you don't want to miss that. If I'm honest with you. Okay. Where does it come? <laughs> I'm joking. Let's talk. Okay. You've heard. You've heard it. Stir uh, the saboteur that's inside you is one of the great <laughs> rhymes of the 90s. <laughs> but so, what I wanted to ask you is. Jocasta were effectively a school band for you guys, and then they got signed by Sony, right? And Sony. There was a lot of hype, and you saw them progress from being a school band to being like a, a good band, and then a, 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 a might even be a contender-type band. What was that like? I, 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 th I think it was fucking brilliant, to be honest with you. It was amazing. It was... It was a little bit unreal, though, and I would say that the point they were at their most famous was before they got, before the Sony deal. They were, the buzz and the noise was, the minute they signed for Sony, it, it, it went quiet while they were recording, it became massively overindulgent, and they were dropped on day one of releasing their album. The good times came before that. They yeah, really did. I, I mean, it's, it's interesting, actually, because in some ways, it's like with our band, although we never got signed to Sony, like... The bit where you have all the music label there and they're all, you know, at your gigs and they obviously had that in spades, you know. Massive. It's incredibly exciting. So, I mean, we, I, I will never forget this because I'd never been to see a band that I knew that were like a kind of really tight, well-rehearsed band with a lot of record company interest, right? Um, 
I've been to see bands I knew play in like a pub in Watford or something, probably. But we went to the Water Rats in King's Cross, which we went on to play many times with the Kling and Seeing Scarlet. And I think we'd never been there before. And it was the first gig that Jocasta had done in a long time, right? They hadn't done a gig in six months. Yep. They'd just been away. They'd been rehearsing. We had a demo tape, but it was like a shitty demo tape, like a school band. They were a school band on that tape. And then we went to see them at the mm. Water Rats. And they were just... And a gig was yeah. full of industry. And I remember them sound checking and coming on. And we heard songs that we knew from the school band tape, but they sounded like a different band playing them. And we were like, oh my God, it's that song. And it was, it was so exciting. And then, you know, it all, obviously it never happened, really. Um, but it was, you know, I remember Alice saying to us once we were in the queue for one of their gigs, and we'd always get on the guest list and feel very important. She was like, yeah, they're headlining Glastonbury next year. And we were like, of course they are. Uh, they weren't, but <laughs> we believed it. <laughs> Yeah, it was. There really was a huge buzz about them, and they were good. And it, I really enjoyed it. I loved. I loved it. I, I think that you know, it was a fun thing to kind of be part of and follow along. Now we're as famous as they are for being in the Go video too. As far as I can tell. <laughs> we are like, in the Go video, which was one of those gigs. But I've said this to Charlie before. I mean, it was mental it, that gig. It was amazing. You do. They were incredibly good live, and none of their recordings quite capture it, actually. Um, which is true of many bands, uh, but not all bands. But I think um, the, the, the kind of the tightness and the excitement in those small venues is not mm. ever replicated on their recordings somehow. Um, but yeah. I, I, I think that, I mean, you know, what do I know? But I think that the biggest problem they had was the amount of resources they had at their disposal when they recorded the album. And yeah. it just, it, it, you know... Flutes! Uh, a flute and what song isn't improved by a third oboe track and <laughs> that was that was the approach that they took that yeah. there's still money in the pot we'll get more session musicians in and it became all the edges of the songs got softened yeah. i think they it, everything got rounded and there was no nothing jagged anymore. the big betrayal for me as you know is um and she's going to lead us nicely on to the final is when they turned not related into a soft yeah uh, sort wrong. of slow track because I love that song. You would go into the gig, you know, and you know what this is like, Charlie. The first song you play is really important. And when you see a band regularly, and they always play the first song first, and you're like, they play the same song as mm. their opener, the set opener. And you're like, yes! You know, and they used to play Not Related. It was just a rocking song, and it had all these amazing like stops and starts. And, and they turned into this sappy ballad and made it a B-side, which really upset me. But anyway... <laughs> And, and we're still bitter. We're still bitter in I, our mid 40s I've had it out with Jack, the guitarist, who went on to produce our band, as listeners will doubtless know. And I said to Jack, why did you do it? And he said, no, 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 the new version's better. The slow version's better. And I was like, it's not. And I'm right and he's wrong. Um, but the interesting thing, I'm glad you picked that one because when I came over and met you guys and it was still a lot of excitement, to, well, in your world around Jocasta, I think probably Jocasta had fizzled by then, uh, but yeah. you guys were still playing their tracks Maybe. when we would go around to everyone's house and we'd still play yeah. Jocaster. Um, th I like that one. That one always stood out to me because it had this chorus that came out of the blue. It almost didn't belong to the rest of the song, which I, which I really like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was part of the whole quiet... They, and they did do, like, Jack is a very, uh, as we all know, is a very talented guitarist and not not to say that tim wasn't also talented he's very talented as, as a songwriter in many ways and in other ways but um you know they, they did loud quiet but they mm. in the quiet bits jack would introduce these intricate really interesting guitar parts and that's one of the things i really appreciate about them 
No, I agree. I, I, I do laugh. I occasionally, in fact, not occasionally, often send Tom little excerpts of things I find that uh, Tim said. And Tim literally last week described himself in an interview as a generational talent, which I think is, uh, is, is strong to, uh, to, to describe yourself that way. Well, yeah. You never know. Well, he's been trying to nurture up, his so. talent for a generation. <laughs> he's the Perry Farrell of, I mean, uh, of 90s indie music. Yeah, I mean, he was never humble, really. Um, but, you know, I am forever grateful for him for, as I say, having, bringing, you know, being a cause of that experience where someone you know is in school, a school band becomes suddenly signed by a major label and you get to be sort of a part of it by going to the gigs and it's it was great you know it was great it was, it was it was really exciting it was really exciting and it felt cool and i loved the music and i this is around the same time as i we used to go into uh, some other bands who we sort of knew um and <laughs> should we moving towards the finale mm. i didn't know we were allowed to play both these bands because i think we were we decided that it wasn't appropriate for this episode to play a song by the clearing or seeing scarlet so instead we play a song by one of the bands that Simon and I used to go and see in London when we were teenagers. And Jocasta was one. And the other, um, was a, one of the others was a band called Evershot. And the interesting thing about this band was, so I think my, I think Astrid, I think my girlfriend at school went to a sixth form college, met some people who knew this band. And, um, and we started going to see them in similar venues, but they were... It- and maybe we're slightly earlier, right? This is all like mid-late 90s, actually. Mid-late 90s in the Dublin Castle. A lot of Dublin Castle. A lot of Dublin Castle. This. And the Camden Falcon, which yeah, became yeah, yeah. the Barfly before the Barfly moved to Chalk Farm Road. And, um, but this band, like, again, when I, Simon and I both discovered, running up to this podcast, that their album, which I didn't even know existed, was on exactly. Spotify. And they recorded this in about 98, I think. Um, so slightly after we were going to see them. And I had no idea. I just literally thought there was a few demo tapes, which we have, and they're not that good. They didn't capture the live sound. And this album has been sitting there, and they only put it on Spotify this year. Nobody knows about them. But they were on the Camden scene, and they were great. And they weren't like... Sony wasn't sniffing around signing them, as far as I'm aware. They were much more of a just like, we're a Camden indie band, we're from Camden, and we're going to stay in fucking Camden. It was that kind and of And Eversholt, famously, is the name of the road that runs Street, from Camden yeah. Town to Euston. Euston. And they lived on Houston. it, or they lived on Eversholt Street or off Eversholt Street. But um, the song I've chosen to play by them, and there were many I could have chosen, and you might not agree with my choice, but it, I agonised. But the reason I chose it is because it was always the opening track, and I hadn't heard this song there were songs on this album time. I had been waiting to hear for 23 years. I'm not joking, because I was like, oh, I remember that song. But I thought I would never hear that, because it's not on the demo tape. And they're all um, on this album. So this song was their opener. I remember it. And um, it was just wonderful to find this album and hear it. So let's have it. And then we can talk about the rest of the story. <laughs>
what a choice. Evershult. I remember you sharing Evershult. Was it a tape with us? Was, did you have CDs? Yeah, and this is, it was a tape and I still have it. It's one of the few tapes I still have and it had four songs on it and, I, and most of them were on this album but recorded better on this album. And I was always disappointed that I could never, I'm going to have to share more of the album with you because even though it will never capture the joy of Evershult, The Dublin Castle, it was, um, it wasn't a great demo tape and I don't think, you must, it must have been, You'd ever, did you ever come and see them, Charlie? No, but you, you were definitely into Evershaw when I arrived. You guys had obviously seen them for ages, but... Uh, the mountains, yeah, I, I, the I, Mountain I, Rescue song? Mountain was the one Rescue. Yeah, yeah. Mountain Rescue was Is that the good expected? one? The really good one? Well, I, I don't know. I was listening to the album, and I don't, I, I don't like Mountain Rescue that much. I mean, it is good in some ways. Um... But there are better ones. Like the thing that really made me absolutely like, oh my God, this is the song I've been waiting to for 23 years, was a song called Four. Which, because there was Days Like These, right? I thought about playing Days Like These, which I remember very well. And there's a song called Four, which is a slow song. These four walls. Remember that? And yeah, I, only, I ever remember heard, it. only ever heard it in gigs. And it is great. And I, I almost wanted to play that. But then I just thought the, that thing about the opening number when they used to play Emergency was so vivid for me that I wanted to play Emergency. But... It's yeah. quite Bjork-esque in, uh, in the lyrical, or the vocal delivery on that one. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought of that. There's a sort of, sort of affected squeakiness or something. And I think Joe Cocker, I mean, this is the other interesting thing, Charlie. You may or may not remember this, but I'm sure that you've met Joe Cocker, the singer of Evershult, because... Have I? Yeah, or, or not, maybe not met her, but we, once we started in the early days of our band and mm. going and seeing bands like Shikoni in the Dublin Castle, yeah. Bugbear, Joe Cocker, the singer of Eversholt, uh, went Was on she the to promoter of Bugbear? Promote, be the promoter of Bugbear. And Bugbear were the promoter of the Dublin Castle. That must have been the most depressing was, job. Well, yeah, I mean, it was weird. I remember going back and she looked, she had short hair. She was, she, you know, I hadn't seen her for years. And I was like, oh, that's Joe Cocker from Eversholt. Uh, I think we should get her on this podcast. She's like Andy Fandango. She was she was there. <laughs> well, I did I did make a very good start on Andy Fandango's book, um, Anoint My Head. Andy Fandango is Andy McLeod um, of Club Fandango, and um, we must get him on the podcast. Yeah. To discuss. But Simon, what would you have played Mountain Rescue, or what what would have been your pick? I I, I think I probably would have played Mountain Rescue. Yeah. Um. Maybe maybe that wouldn't have been the best choice, but I think it would have been my choice to be honest with you. I had such a crush on Joe Cocker. I really oh, did have she a crush was the, on Joe I mean, she was a proper, like, they were like a, an indie band. The, the female-fronted indie band, which was was a was a bit of a, a thing then. I mean, it, 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 there were so many. But it was like a Camden band. It was like our band. We knew. So it was like Astrid's f friend's brother was the guitarist or knew the guitarist. Um, but I realised when listening back to the album, we must have seen them loads of times, you know, because I knew yeah. all these songs. I was like, I know this. I know this. Do you do you remember the night where there was that whole fuss about there's glass in the soap or whatever in that don't you remember that? Joe Cocker in the middle of one of the one of the songs suddenly stopped and said, Apparently there's glass in the soap in the women's toilets. Be careful of <laughs> It was just like it was it was a little bit like, you know, like like something from Woodstock where, you know, a public service announcement taking place to the twelve people who were watching them in in the Dublin Castle on a Wednesday night. It was <laughs> those, I mean, those were the the best gigs. Best gigs. She was a great. She was a great front woman. Um, and they you can hear they're a tight band. Like they had a really good mm. rhythm section, and they're like. Um, so so Evershot Radio is yeah. unfortunately getting a third the listeners um, on Spotify is 
as uh, seeing Scarlet Radio. What are listeners. I mean, let, let's see if we can get them above 1,000 tracks. You know when Spotify tells you this has fewer yeah. than 1,000 listens. Um, <laughs> so Evershot is in that category, you know. They're not known. They're not, like, there's nothing. They've got, like, 82 Facebook followers. Like, nobody knows about them. Um, so should I, should I speak to Fabian directly here and say, Fabian, listen to Evershot as, <laughs> as the listener to this podcast. Well, hang and, on. Uh, I've now just consulted the map, um, and it tells a very stark story. United Kingdom is our, obviously, main listenership base. Um, but a, a staggering uh, second place goes to Germany, and I think that is repeated <laughs> listens from Fabian. <laughs> is, that, is that it? Is there anything else? No, but the, the insight I draw, now that I look at the map, um, is that it's, it's, it's telling a story of uh, the West is back, you know, we we were we were emerging markets. We were Asia and Africa. We what were to like island Qatar? states. We were the Middle the East. You know, uh, I'm afraid they've all dropped down. We've got you know pretty straight shooting Western markets: Sweden, Canada, Ireland, Spain, France. Brexit, Brexit. Yeah. yeah, and you know maybe that's the subject matter shining through. But Bolivia's way down from where it used to be. Um, I'm not going to give you uh, official numbers, but... Uh... You need to reach out to Bolivia more, more effectively and more directly. Mm. They're, they're a gross market. A gross yeah. market. Maybe they were turned off by, I don't know, our interpretation of country music on that episode. <laughs> or... yeah. There's so with... many variables at play here, mm. but all I, I know, know is, uh, you know... <laughs> they'll, we can get them back. We can get them back. Right. We should make a... You know, Simon and I, around this time, we had uh, a bunch of people, exchange students, come to our school from places like Switzerland, Germany, Sweden. We were in this weird school. And we would sit there and go, right, your mission for this year, you've got to make friends with that random Swiss person. You've got to pull that Norwegian. So maybe we <laughs> should do it like that. We should be like, right, you've got to get the listeners from Chile, and I'm going <laughs> to focus on Uzbekistan. And then... Okay, no, no, the challenge is this. Next episode that we do as a three will be with Joe Cocker. Uh, challenge two, Tom, is to get Andy from Club Fandango to be a guest, and I'm going to prepare the South African episode. Um, so, for listeners of the show, we're going to draw it to a close now. Simon, will you come back and, and do this again sometime? Anytime. It's been great fun. Thank you, guys. Fantastic to have you, Simon. Thank you. Say goodnight to the good listeners. Good night. Good night, everyone.